So today we're starting a new series in this year of uh, this series, uh, this whole year thing we've been doing called the Year of Biblical Literacy, or Yobel. And, and the idea is this, that in an age where people read less, they don't even read books, let alone the Bible, that we've been taking this whole year to rediscover the joy of becoming biblically literate. That over the course of this year, our hope and our prayer is that each of us would read the Bible for ourselves and in the process discover a new relationship with this book that we often call the Word of God. So the new series we're starting today is called Upon This Rock and is going to be all about the local church. We're going to be taking a number of weeks to talk to you about why you should invest your life in the local church, not just with your time, not just with your energy, but with your heart that you should fall in love with the local church. If you haven't been raised in church, or if this is your first time to church, then this is a great series for you to understand what this thing we do on a Sunday morning is all about. Because I think most of the watching world are wondering just what it is we are doing here on a Sunday morning? What are we doing when we're gathered in all of these buildings around the country? What exactly is it that we're doing? And let's be honest, to someone who's never been raised in church or never been to church, what we do is a little weird. We come together, we have donuts, we have coffee, and then we do this weird karaoke thing where we all stand up, stare at a wall, and repeat the words that come up on it. And then we all sit down for an interesting, or hopefully interesting, talk. I mentioned earlier that actually we should fall in love with the local church. But if we're honest, that's not a phrase that we hear very often today. Even for those people who have been raised in faith, or people who follow Jesus. You're more likely to hear, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Anyone ever heard that? certainly heard that. Or maybe, I love Jesus, but that doesn't mean I have to be part of a gathering on a Sunday. I have a a private faith. Or even, I love Jesus, but I'm just not getting anything from the church. I'm just not getting much out of it. If you were raised in a really good religious background, then the alternative to that is, I'm just not getting fed. Have you heard that? What is church anyway? Many people have their own understanding or rationalization of what church is. There are a growing number of things that people are starting to say or to justify their view of what church is. I've heard people say, I know, you know, when I'm out in the countryside, I'm looking up in the sky, the blue sky and the trees and the lovely river down beside me. Well, surely that's church, that's church for me. Or, well, didn't Jesus say that when two or more are gathered together, that Jesus is there? Isn't that what that means to be church? Surely, on a Sunday morning, when I'm watching some sports, I've got my friends around with me, and I'm praying for my team to win. Surely, that's church. That must count, right? And I get it. As I said earlier, going to church can be weird. 
I started following Jesus when I was in university, and I went to the University of Kent at Canterbury. So I've started following Jesus, and I think, I need to go to church. That's what Christians do, right? So I'm in Canterbury. What churches do they have? Well, only the top church, surely. You know, Canterbury Cathedral. It must be the best one, because doesn't the Archbishop of Canterbury go there? He's like the head of the whole Church of England. So here I am. I've become a Christian like the week before, and I walk into Canterbury Cathedral. Now, I never grew up in church, so it came as a bit of surprise to see these people in robes, swinging incense lamps, and ringing bells as they walk down the aisle. Let me just be really clear. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I actually love it, but it was weird when I'd never been in a church before. Have you ever seen that Mr. Bean episode where, you know, he's gone to church and he keeps standing up at the wrong time, he doesn't know the words to the, to the hymn that they're singing and, and keeps getting it all wrong? Well, that was me. I didn't have a clue. A little like this. <laughs> made it through, and I even went back. And over my 28 years as a follower of Jesus, I've been to many different church, types of church and denomination. Obviously, though, this is the best one. But the question is, what did the writers of the New Testament mean when they spoke of church? So today I want to do something that's, that's very simple, if somewhat academic and which is to look at the New Testament, and when they say the word church, what do they think they're doing? When they say that word, what is it that they are referring to? I think it's so important, because if we look, if we look at what they were doing in the first century, because whatever they were doing turned the world upside down. Nowadays, we think of church as this this powerful entity that has a huge cultural weight and influence. But at the time of the writing of the New Testament in the first century, these little gatherings of people had no power or influence at all. They're meeting in homes, they're being chased down and killed in public. During that time, the people of God who followed Jesus and gathered together were like this small little cult meeting in corners at the edges of culture. And yet, somehow, 
over the course of just a few hundred years, but definitely over the last 2,000 years, this thing called the church has shaped the history of the world. It might sound like I'm exaggerating, but I'm certainly not. There is no place you can go to in the world that has not been shaped by this thing we call the church. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how this strange little cult meeting that met in homes from the first century became this powerful force that shaped people's lives and changed history as we know it. And so today, we're going to be looking at the key word that's used for church in the New Testament. As some of you may know, the New Testament was written in Greek. Unfortunately, not the Greek that's currently used commonly today in Greece, um, but ancient Greek. And this is, by the way, why sometimes there's some debate between theologians and in the academic and theological circles as to what exactly some of those words mean, because it's not a language that's used today. It's not a live language. But why Greek? Why not Hebrew, the language of the Jews? Or Aramaic. Much of the time, Jesus himself spoke Aramaic, a kind of updated dialect of Hebrew. But no, the Gospels were written in Greek. Because of the prevalence of the Greek culture, Greek was everybody's second language. A little like English is today in many parts of the world. Most people speak their own language and they also speak English in a lot of the world. So since the gospel message of Jesus was designed to be good news for everyone, not just for native speakers of one language, it was important to translate it into a language spoken by many, hence Greek. So the Greek word used in the New Testament, which we translate into the English, the church, is ecclesia. There you go. If you ever want to write it down, there you go. Um, Ecclesia is used over and over again in the scriptures. The word appears 75 times in the Bible. Depending on the translation, 110 times if you include the plural. So ecclesia is this key word used in Greek to describe the church. Now, I'm sure if you were raised or have been raised or been in church any amount of time, then you've heard people say that the church is not a building... It's the people. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, some of you aren't putting your hands up. That's fine, you're being lazy. It's not a problem, that's fine. Carry on. But just saying that the church is the people is not descriptive enough. It's certainly true, but it's not descriptive enough. It doesn't say enough about what it makes, what it is that makes those people the church. What is it that makes them the church What is it about ecclesia? What's really interesting, well, interesting to me anyway, if you know me, is that Paul and the New Testament writers had a whole bunch of words that they could potentially use in the Greek that described religious gatherings of people. They could have used many. They could have used synagogue, like like the Jews, as that describes a people gathering. The pagans in the ancient world, those who worshipped other gods, um, had about three or four different words that 
you could use to describe a religious gathering. None of those words are ecclesia. The New Testament writers chose to use the word ecclesia, which was strange, because prior to that time, ecclesia had never been used to refer to a religious gathering. The first time we see ecclesia used is in 1 Thessalonians, as written by the Apostle Paul. And this word ecclesia was taken out of an already existent secular Greek understanding by Paul to describe the followers of Jesus gathered together. In the English language, if you say the word church today, then people will immediately think of something religious. If you said the word church instead in a non-religious way, people will go, that's a weird use of that word. In a similar way, no one in the first century would have thought of ecclesia as a religious word. It has no religious connotation at all. So when Paul is using this word, when the New Testament writers use this word in the ears of an ancient person, a first century person, they would be surprised that this word is being used at all. Now, Paul is doing this on purpose. He's avoiding using words for religious gatherings because he's saying, actually, something different is happening here. He's saying that the people that are gathered around Jesus, they are different to any other kind of religious gathering that people of that time knew of. The reason is is that the other religious gatherings at that time are about power and prestige. They're about authority. You join these religious groups, for example, in the ancient Roman world, if you're of a certain class. You have to qualify to get in. But Paul is saying that this thing, gathering around Jesus, is completely different to those other things, to those other religious gatherings. So what was the ordinary meaning of the Greek word ecclesia. I have two points to make here, and then I'm going to pull it all together, and hopefully we'll finish in the next hour or two. It'll be good. Just, just strap yourself in. I am kidding. So point one. Ecclesia means assembly. The Greek word ecclesia is more accurately translated as assembly or congregation. The first translation of the New Testament into modern English was the Tyndale Bible. And the word ecclesia was properly translated to assembly in every instance. The word church was actually a later creation. It was referring more to the institutional hierarchy, the the bishops and the priests and the cathedrals in which they met. Um, And over time, because of European politics and to assert power, the word church was used instead of assembly or congregation in the Bible. I don't have the time to go into the history of this. If you guys know me, you'll, you'll, you'll know that I'm fascinated by this kind of stuff. So if you are interested, do come and have a chat with me afterwards. I can see the queue forming already. The problem is the word church has lost a little of the original meaning and has taken on some strong cultural aspects. N.T. Wright, who some of you know as my favorite theologian, a bit weird that I have a favorite theologian, but I do, did a new rendering of the New Testament a few years ago. Seven 
to be precise, called The Kingdom New Testament. Now, I highly recommend it generally, but specifically in relation to today, everywhere it says church, it actually changes the translation of ecclesia to assembly. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1, the first New Testament book written side by side between the NIV and uh, the Kingdom New Testament. In the NIV, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. In the Kingdom New Testament, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the assembly of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus. N.T. Wright no longer uses the word church because he realizes the English. We don't understand what that word really means. He says to the assembly. Let me tell you why this is really valuable. And I'm conscious that I might upset some people here, especially if you're listening to this via the podcast. But I'm sure you'll get over it. If not, come speak to me. What is really valuable is it seems clear to me that Paul, to be, seems clear to me that to Paul, to be the church means that you have to assemble together. That you meet together and do certain kinds of things. When Paul addresses the churches in his letters, he talks about the way you sing songs together. He says you also publicly read scripture and seek to understand it. He also says when you assemble together to receive communion elements like we have done today, make sure you do them in certain kinds of ways. Paul assumes that the people gather together. And then he actually confronts people that don't gather. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. The New Testament believes that to be the church means that you gather together and that if you don't gather together, whatever you are, you are not the people of God. You might be people that believe certain kinds of things, but you're not people that are actually living out what it means to be the people of God. Ecclesia means an assembly, not a set of beliefs. An ecclesia is a gathering of people that come together to do certain kinds of things. Sadly, in the Western world, we've made the church synonymous with other kinds of things that we just sort of belong to. Anybody here got a gym membership? Some of them. I think you're being hesitant because you know what I'm going to do next. I imagine that if I was to ask how many of you regularly go to the gym, we'd probably get a lot less hands, if any. I had a gym membership for years. Years. I probably went about five times. I know that's a shock when you look at my athletic physique, but it's true. So it's one thing to have a gym membership. It's another thing entirely to actually go to the gym. Some of you have a gym membership, and you just take solace in the knowledge and in the fact that there are machines waiting for you 
if you ever decide to turn up. And in a sense, you are a member of the gym. You pay your monthly membership, you're a member. And many people think that going to church or being part of the church is that same kind of thing. I belong to that church, I just don't go. I don't assemble as the church, but I go to that church, you know, when there's nothing else occupying my time. If I just happen to wake up on time and all the stars align and my kids get their shoes on and I don't have any other activity to do, then I go assemble with the people of God. But even if I don't go, I'm still a part of the Central Vineyard Church. When the Apostle Paul, what the Apostle Paul would say really simply to that is, no, you're not. Because the church is not the kind of thing that works the way that a gym works. But the church is the kind of thing that the gathering itself describes what it means to be a part of that thing. The New Testament tells us that to say that you are the church or I'm a part of that church and not be assembled is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. We've drifted so far from this reality in the Western world because we're individualistic, we're selfish, we're consumers. And we say if we're not getting something out of it and we have something better to do with our time, then we go do that instead. The New Testament stands up and Paul stands up and says, no, this, is not, this isn't just about what you get. It's about standing in continuity with 2,000 years of history where the people of God gather together for very specific reasons. So that together we demonstrate something to ourselves and to the world that we believe that Jesus Christ reigns supreme over everything else that we have focused and centered our lives around Jesus. We do these things together. We worship, we receive communion, we look at scriptures, not just for ourselves, but as a gathered people that stand in opposition to what the culture says is valuable. Okay, we're nearly there. That was point one. Don't worry, point two is much shorter, I think. Point two is about the context in which the word ecclesia was used in the first century before it was adopted by the New Testament writers. Point two is that ecclesia means or was used primarily for governmental assembly. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, in the New Testament, ecclesia is the only single word used for church. It was the name given to the governmental assembly of the city of Athens, duly convoked, called out by proper officers and possessing all political power, including even judicial functions. It's a government gathering. An ecclesia is a gathering of citizens that are called out and appointed by their local citizens. They appoint certain people to gather together to make decisions on behalf and for the benefit of the city or the state. Do you see how this is a strange word for the New Testament writers to use to, to speak of the church? It would effectively be like the city council today. 
You can even see this usage of the word as a gathering of government in the New Testament. One specific place is Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is preaching about Jesus in Ephesus. His preaching is causing some problems because some of the Artemis temple worship is being disrupted. People get angry because he's sort of messing up their religious rituals. And this mob gathers to try to kill Paul in an assembly in Ephesus. And there's this weird verse that Luke describes where a leader stands up to disperse the crowd. This huge mob that's going to try and kill Paul. And listen to what it says. Acts 19, 35 to 39. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, don't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples or blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly, in the ecclesia. The leader stands up and says, listen, you can't just kill Paul in public. I know that he's disrupting the temple worship, but if you want to get this settled, you have to do it in the city council meeting, the ecclesia, not here. So even within the New Testament, this word ecclesia means a gathering of people who have authority and power to make decisions for the good of the city. And you can see how even as Luke's describing this, he's using this word in a way that the Greeks would understand. And then as you continue in Acts, he uses the word to describe this thing called the church. Ecclesia means a gathering of public officials to make decisions on behalf of the city. Now, some of you are already bored to death. I can see your eyes glazing over, but hang in there. I'm coming into land. Because if Paul is saying that the church looks more like a governmental meeting than a religious meeting, what is he saying? Why would he choose to use this subversive language to talk about people gathered around Jesus? To try to change the meaning of a word that was already understood. Very few of you this morning probably woke up thinking, I'm showing up to do a very subversive thing today. I'm, going, I'm doing something really controversial by walking into a gathering of God's people. But I would like to suggest to you that what you do when you gather in a room like this is very subversive according to the scriptures. Imagine Paul writing to these people in these letters and he's saying, you guys who meet in this person's home, you represent the power of God to change the world. When he's using a government word, he's saying there's another locus of power in the city. That locus or center of power is not the government but the gathered people 
of God, who have the authority of God to change the city. That's pretty radical, isn't it? And you can see it would, would, why it would be so subversive. They were claiming that they, that they were the power to change how the city works, not the city government. And we dare to claim that today also. We, the church, are the real power of change where we live. Because in our gatherings, the rich and the poor gather together. The old and the young gather together. People who are addicts and people who have been good church, nice church people their whole life. They all gather together. People whose lives have been blown up are being restored. We forgive each other in a way that no one's ever seen before. It happens in this place. This is a different kind of power. The power to change where we live. Whether that's Northampton, Wellingborough, Kettering, wherever it is. We're the gathered people. My prayer is that you can show up in rooms like this with more expectation than ever, believing that you bring something to this room and that the gathering itself is valuable to God as we stand in continuity with 2,000 years of history. You know, at this very moment, this morning, there are people gathering with other followers of Jesus around the world who are at risk, in peril of their very life. They're in real danger of dying this morning to gather and do what we are doing right now. And they do it anyway because they say it's as the gathered people of God that we proclaim that we trust him more than we trust anything else. If people are willing to risk their lives, can we be a little inconvenienced? Can we chase the kids around to get them in the car? Can we prioritize assembling and gathering together over all other activities? It's important what we do in this room, what we do in this very place every week. Not just for you, but for this place, for Northamptonshire, for who we are and who we become, the Ecclesia.